0: You are listening to WCAT Radio, your station for quality Catholic programming. Your selected program will begin right after a word from our sponsor, GroupM7.com, a web design and hosting company. Log on to GroupM7.com today and let them know that WCAT Radio sent you.
1: You know, my finest childhood memories was the Saturday morning movies for about four bits each. My brother and I could split a Coke and a big box of popcorn and watch movies about Tarzan Jane and their Amazon River adventures. Well, maybe that's where Jeff Bezos took his name. His Amazon.com is now the largest online retailer in the world. I'm Michael Malfood with Group M7, the oldest and largest website design firm in East Texas. And here's my point. And as usual, it's a good one. If your website is modern and up to date, mobile and search engine friendly, it matters not whether you sell a product or provide information about your goods and services. Your sales justifiably will increase, just like theirs. The world uses the internet. We can improve your website and your email. Look at our giant portfolio at GroupM7.com. Since 1995, there's only one web and there's only one group, and it's us. It's Group M7.
0: You're listening to WCAT Radio, your home for authentic Catholic programming. Welcome to The Open Door, a show based on the words in Revelation, I have left an open door before you, which no one can close. This is WCAT Radio's longest-running show, which opened the door to the radio station in October 2016. It's currently offered by Jim Hannink, Mario Ramos Reyes and friends, and remains open to the love of God in its call to build a culture of life and a just social order through the panel's discussion of the Catholic social teaching principles of solidarity, subsidiarity, and economic democracy. The Open Door also explores nonviolence, distributism, and communitarianism. So, join us at The Open Door, where you, too, can be part of the conversation.
2: Welcome to The Open Door. Jim Hannick here with fellow panelists Mario Ramos-Reyes and Christopher Zender. Today, we explore the multifaceted legacy of Asian Americans In recent months, as we know, they've increasingly become the targets of hate crimes. I have a couple of statistics from a think tank, courtesy of yesterday morning's paper. Uh, Across the country, in the last quarter, there's been a 164% increase in anti-Asian hate crimes. Uh, New York, the worst at 223%, 140% in San Francisco, and 80% in Los Angeles. So it's very sobering. Uh, A range of other issues also come to mind. These are more background issues. Uh, Asian Americans in international study programs as well as Asian nationals in study programs here. Charges of intellectual espionage and the influence of the Chinese Communist Party are special and welcome guest and my own very old good friend is the distinguished logician, Professor Gary Marr of State University of New York at Stony Brook. We begin in prayer. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who has taught the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant that by the gift of the same Spirit, we may be always truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Professor Marr, Gary, if, if we might, uh, could you tell us a, a bit about your background? You are from California, are you not? <laughs> yes.
3: Yes, I am. I was born in Richmond, California. And I was a colleague of Jim at Loyola Marymount while I was finishing my PhD at UCLA. Uh, There I met uh, wonderful people like uh, Rhonda Chervin and Bob Hurd, and and especially Jim, who affected the way I wanted to be an academic. I um, ended up at Stony Brook, but I uh, remember fondly those days at Loyola Marymount. Um, Let's see, uh, what was the question again, Jim?
2: well anything more about the background just to give us a little context
3: well i I grew up in sacramento um my uh i i learned a lot about well uh, let's see um i think first of all that the what's going on now is because of a lack of asian american history in the public mind and because asians are missing from that history they often uh, feel as if they're eliminable. They're, they're not really part of the American story. And part of what I, I, you know, had growing up is I didn't know that history, and I had to discover it uh, just, you know, like a decade or two ago uh, when I um, decided I needed to teach Asian American history. I had uh, approached a donor, Charles Wong, um, after he had come back from China, and after I had just come back from China with the uh, Society of Christian Philosophers, and I felt that there was a need to know this history. Uh, Two Asian American girls at a local high school had committed suicide on the Long Island Railroad, Ellen Liu and Millie Sabuti, and they had met in the gifted and talented program in third grade, and my oldest daughter was just about to go into that program, and I thought, you know, that it couldn't be just an accident that these two Asian American girls had made this suicide pact. And I wanted the university to be a place where these issues can be talked about and discussed. And so um, that's how I got involved. I approached a donor, Charles Wong, to, to to just modify a hallway. It was just this hallway that wasn't being used. I asked my dad, um, who was a World War II veteran, Uh, you know, to draw the plans for that. And he drew it. I submitted it to Charles, and uh, he decided to donate the money for the hallway, but also $25 million to build an Asian American center on my campus. And at the time, it was the largest donation in the history of public education in New York. And so it was no education. So I said, well, I have to learn this. I have to start uh, teaching myself. And I advocated for it to be uh, recognized to the American Philosophical Association and uh, that was successful. Um, and so I just ended up teaching it for a decade or two and learning it and teaching my students about that history.
2: Okay, Mara, you want to take us forward? We've got a good context already.
4: Yes, um, it's very interesting. Um, I'm curious about what you said that the history of Asian American is missing. There is no narrative or it seems mm-hmm. there is no narrative that can explain where uh, your people are coming from. To what um, factor you attribute that um, that situation?
3: Well, it's, it's due to several things. It's the stereotype of Asians as always being foreigners, no matter how long you've been here, I'm third generation you're still not considered truly American. And uh, there's also the uh, perception, because of the way the history is taught, that Asian Americans are silent, resigned victims. If you look at the pictures and history books, the most famous ones are either the Transcontinental Railroad meeting, and it <laughs> says, not an Asian faces to be seen, even though Chinese were 90% of the workforce coming from California. But the famous photo is just saying... They're absent. Um, Another picture that you'll find in history books is uh, a Japanese child sitting on a suitcase looking forlorn and people being herded into uh, trains. 110,000 Japanese uh, Americans were put into these trains. Detention camps, concentration camps in 10 deserted parts of the United States, two thirds of them were American citizens, and the other third were forbidden to become American citizens by discriminatory laws. And yet, the um, 442nd, which is the most decorated battalion of its kind uh, in uh, military history, the all Japanese American force that fought in the European theater, because they couldn't, weren't trusted to fight in the Pacific theater. Um, were sacrificing their lives at a rate um, that was phenomenal, and you know the the, the amount of decorations they obtained is still historic to this day. But yet they were doing this while their wives and their families were in the internment camps. Um, Asian Americans are often afraid to say concentration camps, but that's what they were. Um, they're afraid to say that because they don't want it to be compared to the death camps which uh, uh jewish uh people were subjected to in um in europe at the time but it was a horrible part of american history and it's still there uh even though eventually uh the government apologized uh for this um the uh, legal precedent is still there uh, Judge Roberts wrote the dissenting opinion and said, it's still there like a loaded gun that can be used to detain uh, people in times of crisis. And that's what we've seen after 9-11. After 9-11, the hate crimes went up not just 200 percent, it went up 1,600 percent against people of that looked like uh, uh, Muslim or Arab or South, you know, West Asian. Uh, the the uh, conditions are there because at times of economic hardship, people need a scapegoat and they scapegoat Asian Americans because they're characterized as model minorities, right? Model minorities for whom the the stereotype came about in the sixties to discipline the civil rights movement. So if you're a model minority, you're a, you're a minority and you're a model, but model for whom? Right. It was saying that here are people that pull themselves up by their bootstraps because of their cultural values and people who are demonstrating in the street for civil rights should not uh, um, be so violent and and follow these model minorities. But, you know, that history is not true. Um, uh, First of all, um, many Asian Americans are in the poverty level you know, people from Southeast Asia and so forth, they they don't use uh, federal services. Uh, also, uh, being stuck as a model minority means that you get violence from not only whites, the dominant group, but also from minorities who resent being held up uh, to a model. Uh, i I had the privilege of interviewing Yuri Kochiyama, uh, while I was doing this teaching, Yuri is pictured in the famous photo, uh, time-life photo with uh, Malcolm X. Uh, she was in an internment camp during World War II. She was a journalist. Her husband was in the 442nd. And then after she got out, she arranged for Hiroshima maidens to come back to America to get plastic surgery on their faces uh, with Jewish doctors. And then she moved her family to work in Harlem with Malcolm X. And when I went out to uh, interview Yuri, she was there on her walker. She was living in a black retirement home in Oakland, and she was still getting calls to go to rallies. And uh, I have one of the few interviews where she talks about uh, how Martin Luther King and Malcolm X were coming together in their philosophies. Um, She said Malcolm saw that King was able to get great crowds, And Martin Luther King was starting to see that Malcolm's analysis of what was going on uh, uh, was deeper than just talking about civil rights. Uh, Martin Luther King was starting to criticize the Vietnam War because a great percentage of the people who were dying were African-American men. And when he was told not to talk about that, he said, I fought against segregation so long I can't segregate my consciousness, my conscience. And he uh, you know, both of them were were assassinated along with Kennedy and and um, John F. Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King. You know, um, I I've I've worked with activists who who knew um, these people, and what what Yuri said to my students, she said, "Learn history and change the world." Um, there's a beautiful documentary made about her by. Um, one of the civil mothers of the civil rights workers who were killed in the South, you know the Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman. Goodman's mother uh, financed a documentary called uh, Yuri Kochiyama: Passion for Justice. But I, I felt privileged to go out there and interview her. Um, you know, before you've, the, been,
2: you've been emphasizing history, and Christopher writes history texts, so I want him to come into this conversation.
5: Okay. Um, I don't know if this is more of a question or observation, but it's something you can comment on. Something you said we were talking about earlier about how, that, we, in a sense that Ameri- people don't seem to understand the, the whole idea of the model, model minority. A Mexican fellow, a friend of mine from um, Yucatan years ago said to me, he said one of the problems that he faced, he thought was a problem with relations with mexicans was that some people tended to think that mexicans were more virtuous than whites and therefore they kind of put up this idea he says "You know we're we're just as human as everybody else we have there are good mexicans and there are bad mexicans and he wanted that to be acknowledged um, too i was thinking my, my wife's mother is from the philippines and um, when i first started dating my wife we would we would go out in different places and she was able, I, uh, for me coming from my middle, middle, middle Western family background, uh, the, uh, or people from the uh, Asians pretty much look the same, but my wife was pointing out the difference. She said, no, that's from, that person's Chinese, that person's Japanese, that person's Indonesian, that type of thing. There's, I wonder to what extent is is that that lack of um, understanding of, Is it a lack of a full grasp of the actual humanity of people who are just different from us, both in um, the fact that they can be evil, even that, or that there there really are differences amongst Asians, which are as profound as the differences that you will find, say, between Europeans?
3: Yes, I I agree that that uh, uh, you know all groups are just as human as other groups and have good and bad. But the way stereotyping works, in my opinion, is that there is a good stereotype and a bad stereotype, and people are not allowed to be in their full humanity in between. So uh, if you uh, are in a faculty meeting and you um, are supposed to be as, uh, you know, quiet and a model minority, but you speak up and you object to something, all of a sudden you're put into the category of the angry Asian person or the... uh, the bad Asian person. And that's how stereotypes work for um, people of the generation my my parents grew up. There was Charlie Chan, who was the model minority, and Fu Manchu. And you had to be one or the other. As soon as you act up, you're put in the bad category. Same thing for women. Uh, Anna Mae Wong played both the dragon lady and the lotus blossom. right? So one uh, stereotype is the woman who can... uh, Uh, you know who who knows has a lure and is able to seduce um, men and the the evil version was the uh, you know the version that uh, drew men into their um, into depravity right but the, the the way the way it works is that you don't become human you're not in between because we don't have the stories of 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 real people we have the we have these stereotyped polar opposites which are mechanisms of control rather than uh ways of giving humanity to 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 these stories um can I show you a picture sure okay so let me um uh, tell you an example of a of a of a story here that um has been helpful uh when i have um this is uh this is a picture of, of, of my dad. Uh, he was a veteran during World War II because my grandfather was the informal mayor of Modesto, California, of the Chinatown. And so my dad, when you know Pearl Harbor was bombed, he wanted to join the Air Force, and he had my grandfather, who couldn't speak or read English, um, sign the form so he could go. And at the same time, he saw his Japanese-American uh, kids you know, going off to internment camps, you know. So, but this is what he was most proud of. Um, it says on the twenty-fifth day of October, nineteen hundred and forty-four, the fickle finger of fate finds it expedient to trace on the roll the lucky of the Lucky Bastards Club the name of John W. Marr, bombardier, on the Flying Fortress Little Eight Ball, for having this day achieved the remarkable. Record of sailing forth and returning no less than 35 times for having braved the hazards of Hun Flack, for bringing to Hitler and his cronies tons of bombs, for bending the Luftwaffe back all through the courtesy of the Eighth Air Force, who sponsor these programs in the interests of liberty loving people everywhere. And uh, on the back, you know, are the signatures of the people on his plane. You see, my my dad was, um, he was uh, stationed in Big Springs, Texas, where he met my mom, who was cleaning carburetors and putting them in cars. And he went overseas, and 35 missions was 10 more than the standard tour of duty that was 25. People were dying at the rate of, you know, 25% of the planes never came back. Um, Some people say Jimmy Stewart's performance in It's a Wonderful Life is so powerful because he was sent for two missions on the front lines in an airplane uh, like this. And uh, he's suffering PTSD. Um, But my dad flew 35 missions. And then when he came back, they got married. They started the first Chinese takeout place in in Sacramento he used his uh, bomb you know his engineering skills he took out the back seat of the delivery truck and put a pan of water over it and the steam heated the chow mein and and all of this uh was they they started that and all my mother's family their younger brothers and sisters came to live with him there you see cuz when my mother uh was uh, a teenager her father was the head of a Chinese association but uh, he was murdered and uh she was forced to raise her younger brothers and sisters with her older brother. So, um, Joseph and she was married had to raise these kids because their mom was put in an institution, uh, because the dominant society didn't understand that it was normal for Chinese, uh, women to talk to the ghosts of their departed, um, spouse. Uh, much like uh, Catholics would pray to saints for for guidance. And so when her mother was institutionalized, she had to raise these kids. And so that's why she was putting carburetors in. And then they all moved to Sacramento and lived there. They had Southern names like um, Annabelle Lee and Olive and Willie May. And all the Chinese guys in Sacramento would cruise by the Chinese kitchen because these Southern bells had come into town. And it was a cool thing to be a delivery boy for this. And um, so my dad, though, would, you know, because he bombed all these buildings, he went back to Berkeley on the GI Bill and became an architect. And um, you know, if he hadn't been able to do that, I probably would never have gone to college and been a professor. But because he uh, did that, he he. When I told Dad after he retired, you know, come back and draw plans for a, a remodeling of a of a hallway, he did that. And he put Charles Wong's name on it, and I gave those plans to Charles. And when he came to speak at Stony Brook, and he had just come back from China, like I had just gone with the Society of Christian, and his heart was changed. And for somehow, he just looked at it, and his wife said, Charles, you know, why don't you do it? And he reached out his hand, and he gave me a check for $25,000 to refurbish this hard hallway. And on the way out of the door, he said, um, why are we doing a hallway? Why don't we do a building? And that's how it led to the $25 million by the end of the year. But I. Um...
2: That's, that's extraordinary, Gary. That's just really <laughs> extraordinary. And, and I, I, I can tell how you've come to be an activist while, while making your mark initially and continuously as an academic. And in a way, you had an earlier model for this blend of the academic and the activist with, with Donald Kalish at UCLA. Is
3: that right? Yeah, Donald Kalish was my mentor. He he hired Angela Davis. He he was at the Chicago Seven trial, and I I always admired Don because he was a great teacher. He he let people you know become his students become important, you know, like David Kaplan and other philosophers, uh, um, Dana Scott. uh, There's so many people that became famous logicians because of Kalish, but Kalish was that generous kind of person. He, he invited me to uh, author the second edition of that classic textbook because, you know, he had put off becoming a full professor and that was his way of, of doing it. But he, he was very generous in that way. And uh, that's the kind of academic I wanted to become. Uh, I wanted to be the kind of person who was a good teacher.
2: I want to make one more comment uh, before going back to Mario and and perhaps going ahead to, to other questions relating to Asian Americans. And, and the comment is this. We've had a number of good friends and uh, Oh, well, wonderful people on this program. Uh, just last week, we had, uh, I think, a terrific education in the development of Christian democracy in Italy, so we're, we're kind of far-ranging. But the person I was thinking of, and here's a connection to Hollywood, and here's a connection to stereotyping, is a fellow named Ron Austin and uh he's he's still with us very much with us and he is the last living member of the hollywood blacklist
5: mm.
2: once upon a time there's a fellow named um uh, mccarthy <laughs> <laughs> and there was a blacklist and uh Well, Ron Austin was on it, and because he was on it, he had a transition from from Hollywood to Catholic Charities work. (laughs) It's quite a transition. I'm not going to ramble forever. One of the things that Ron says is, uh, even more so in the past, Hollywood and television, almost nothing to do with art, almost nothing. Everything is pre-packaged. Everything that's produced is understood as a commodity. And if what you're producing is a commodity, you pretty much shape the um, the, the subtext for it. And so I suspect that what, what what's going to happen is perhaps what's already happening is we go from one group of people shaping one kind of commodity to another group of people shaping another kind of commodity and what gets lost in the transition it was lost before the transition is art let the story be the story mm-hmm. I think that's something that, that we have to at least note now uh, Mario we've got a number of other questions that we want to ask uh, uh, Gary I wonder if you would like to
4: lead us into one or other. Yes. um, I was uh, very careful uh, listening to your story. Let me tell you a brief background. When I came to to this country 30-some years ago, I wanted to study philosophy, speculative philosophy, mainly metaphysics. And I went to a professor who was a very prestigious professor then, was the only Hispanic. And probably at that time, there were not many Hispanic at the American Philosophical Association. I think he was one of the very few. And he interviewed me. We spoke in Spanish. And he said, well, it's better for you to study other than speculative philosophy, something about your background. And you need to get first legitimacy by showing that the continent from which you belong or you coming from has also a philosophy. And so, and he mentioned, I remember uh, vividly the expression in 1941, 42, I see Jean-Paul Sartre said, well, today Paris and France fail. The Nazi has just destroyed our country, and France believed to be the center of humanity, what is human. So we no longer have an awareness of what is human now, because the barbarian has just destroyed our country. And he said, that professor said, that was the starting point. In Latin America, many to begin thinking about their own philosophy and not co- being copied from the French and from the Europeans. Mm-hmm. And he said, you need to start thinking about that. Otherwise, you are not going to have any legitimacy in the academic world in this country. So that, in many ways, changed what I was been doing. Now, when I hear, that's my point, that you are a logician, which to me is something that somehow is divorced from from history, from something which is more practical, philosophically speaking. And you are not, quote unquote, an expert on Asian American philosophy, Asian philosophy. Um, What do you... How did you become a logician? Which seems to me that's kind of divorced from anyone, ethnicity, if you will.
3: Okay. Uh, a good question. Uh, I became interested in logic and philosophy in fourth grade when I was reading Martin Gardner's columns and books. And um, that that sort of uh, was magical to me about how you could solve puzzles and paradoxes. And Martin Gardner put a great deal of philosophy into it too. And many uh, mathematicians and logicians had their start reading Martin Gardner's columns. You know, he was, um, he took philosophy classes at the university of Chicago from Rudolf Carnap and wrote one of the few uh, popular accounts of Carnap's philosophy. So that I, I grew up uh, wanting that. And, um, and along the way, I, uh, I experienced a lot of f- things that didn't make sense to me as an academic, why I was being treated differently. But they made sense uh, once I started to understand Asian American history. So no- let me distinguish between Asian American studies and Asian studies. You can ask the question, um, can you understand the civil rights movement Asian. in America or the experience of blacks in America by studying the cultures Of Africa? And the answer, of course, is no. And similarly, you can't understand the Asian American experience by studying the cultures of Asia. And so there's been sort of historically a distinction between two disciplines, Asian Studies and Asian American Studies, which I think are coming together these days with the critique of Orientalism and Asian Studies and so forth. But um, originally they had two different agendas. Asian studies came out of the Cold War uh, attempt to wanting to uh, contain Asia after 1949 and um, uh, Mao Zedong had come to power. So like, you know, so my dad was able to join the Air Force and so forth because China was considered to be the good guys and the Japanese were the bad guys, right? They had these famous Time Life magazine articles and how to tell your friends from the Japs. And... Um, they They were very stereotypical they would say that the the Japanese work hard heeled and and so forth and laugh inappropriately, but the chinese uh shuffle and uh, are you know are are not as you know and and um are are more humorous and so forth and This had nothing to do with the distinction between chinese and Japanese i mean I always wondered growing up why do people say are you Chinese or Japanese and you'd answer the question. And they couldn't tell anyway. But why would they keep asking? Well, it was because of World War Two. You know, the Japanese were the bad guys, Chinese were the good guys, and they looked the same to people, right? But in 1949, all of a sudden it flipped. Chinese were the bad guys, and Japan were the good guys. And you started to have movies like Tea House of the August Moon, and you know, these, um, you know, making... Um, Uh, you know, the Japanese or the Koreans or whatever, you know, the good guys and the Chinese, the bad guys. And then, again you know, it keeps flipping like this, even though people can't tell the difference. So it tells you that the purpose of stereotypes is to control a group. So, you know, a lot of anti-Asian hate now is because of the discourse about China. You know, Chinese spies and so forth. And, 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 um, you know, that uh, it's our greatest economic partner, uh, competitor, and so people treat Asians in America as what American foreign policy is to the countries of Asia. Most of the wars in the 20th century have been against Asia. It began not only with the conquest of the, the you know, the Philippines, the first Vietnam, uh, the takeover of Hawaii, you know, the going around the Korean War, the Vietnam War you know, all of these wars going around the um, Pacific Basin are an extension of the manifest destiny that the U.S. uh, felt it was its moral imperative, right? But manifest destiny sort of going around the Pacific Rim. And even today when we see the conflict in West Asia, it's sort of that same colonial movement. You know, American history really can't be understood outside of the fact that, you know, Columbus didn't just you know sail out of the blue in 1492 he was looking for china he was looking for a route to china and the northwest passage was an attempt to find a shortcut to china so this idea of the of china being a place where you could get oriental goods and spices and teas and it was a place of for wealth uh, this was part of the discovery of america and today the same thing people look at china and hong kong that you know, all that kind of stuff as 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 economic uh, opportunity you know, the turnover of hong kong in 1997 was very important to the chinese people but in america it was sort of like why what is why is this important well you know the the boston tea party in america was throwing tea over it was tea from china because the us and great britain had introduced opium into China and addicted people to fix the trade imbalance, and as a result of that, uh, you know, um, there was a commissioner in China that burnt up the opium in protest. That was the context for the Opium Wars, and that's why Hong Kong and the other treaty ports were taken over with extraterritoriality. The the British controlled that entry point into China, and so finally, when it was returned, it was a big. Deal around the world for Asian people, but in America, people didn't understand Wait a minute that's connected to the Boston Tea Party. This is connected to American history. America had unfair treaties with China, so when I went with the Society of Christian Philosophers to China to talk about sharing Western philosophy and you know uh, philosophy religion, I felt that it was important to talk about the healing of nations and it was important to talk about in the book of revelation it says that the tr- you know that the, the the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations in genesis you have the tree which is the tree of knowledge of good and evil and in the end in revelation you have this other tree and part of the healing of nations comes when nations admit what they have done to other nations so i i showed a documentary my students had made about angel island in san francisco bay where chinese were uh, put into prison, and the scholars carved on the walls poems in Chinese uh, about their imprisonment. Um, you know, people would from their villages would spend all this money to send a representative, and only you know the the best and most qualified scholars were often uh, you know there representing their whole village, and yet they were detained on Angel Island because of the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882. Uh, And they had to pass all of these interrogations about their villages, like how many windows was the house two doors down from you? And how many steps uh, were there to your front room? And who's the person who lived uh, on the next block? And, uh, of course, what the Chinese did was that they made up imaginary villages so they could answer these questions. And so... um, they were accused of being tricky, but in fact, these discriminatory laws lasted for about 100 years in America. It wasn't until the 1965 Hart-Celler Immigration Act that this was turned around. You know, my dad fought in World War II. The United States passed the Magnuson Act uh, to repeal the Chinese Exclusion Act, but it only raised the quota from 100 Chinese per year to 105 per year. That was the repeal, adding five more Chinese from anywhere in the world compared to 65,000 from Great Britain. So it wasn't until the Hart-Seller Act was was passed during the Johnson administration that Asian countries were put on an equal footing with other countries. That's why you see the sudden growth uh, of Asian Americans in this country after 1965. You know, my, uh, my uncle, uh, Uncle Joe, who, who, um, didn't move to Sacramento and live in the Chinese kitchen, was a bachelor in San Francisco. The ratio of men to women because of discrimination laws against Chinese women going back to the Page Act in 1875 was like 20 to 1. It was a thousand to 1 in the old West. And so what people did was, um, you know, there weren't enough women to marry. And so, um, he extended his citizenship. Because there was a young single Chinese woman and her son that was going to be deported, so he they married so that she can have his citizenship. And those were called paper sons and daughters, you know, or, or these arranged marriages. That uh, the 1906 San Francisco earthquake destroyed the the records, so people could claim to be sons and daughters of people who lived in the United States and therefore they could become citizens. But he did this, and this is what Chinese did, and so they. They were called tricky, but even though they were just using their intelligence to fight discriminatory laws, uh, he ended up um, committing suicide. His body wasn't discovered for a week later, but he um, believed in philosophy and reading, and he gave me as part of my inheritance $50 so I could buy any book I wanted. And that's how I bought um, Martin Gardner's book on mathematical logic. And, um, you know, my own research finally came around where it was published in a descendant of Martin Gardner's column by by Ian Stewart. It was uh, using computers to, you know, generate a chaotic version of the liar paradox. So I guess sort of a long question. I became a logician because of my first love. I learned about my history because of the need to protect my daughters. And then after all this happened... My Aunt Catherine told me that my grandfather was a philosopher. And when Mm -hmm. I got his notebooks and had them translated, he was a philosopher who was interested in mathematical puzzles. And here I thought I was going away from everything I grew up to be something totally different. And yet it comes around that I, I ended up learning about myself by following what I thought, was a completely independent path. <laughs> Thank
2: you. G.K. Chesterton talks a lot about coming home.
3: Yeah. So
2: going around the world and coming home. <laughs> yeah. And how important that is. Christopher, we've got more history in front of us now. What next?
5: Yeah, I'm curious to return to the question that we started with, or the topic we started with, of hate crimes. Um, I think most Probably most people would think, oh well, there was the there was the, the the Japanese internment camps in World War II. But really, since that time, there hasn't been um, overt acts of racism or, in this case, hate crimes against um, Asian Americans. Is is uh, they might not know, like for instance, the the struggles like the Filipino workers had to go through in the '60s and the like, and the and, and the, the bigotry they had to face. Um, are these hate crimes a, a, a new eruption, or you, you look upon them as maybe just a, a intensification of something that has been continuous in America uh, since Salem? It,
3: it's war. certainly been continuous. It's just in the news now, but the structures of history that uh, obliterate the history of a people. Uh, it's, it's the same forces that allow these hate crimes to continue. The way, the way I like to look at it is that they often, uh, in the textbooks say, well, what are the contributions of this group? And they always name, you know, like in my university, C. and Yang was a Nobel Prize winner, or David Ho, who discovered, um, cure for AIDS or the cause for AIDS. And they, they just list these people, but I think that's a wrong story because it makes, uh, you know the chinese were only important because they contributed uh, to create the transcontinental railroad which made america a, a country from sea to shining sea but it, it's not right um the, the reason is is that the way this is how i look at it imagine a white light and you put it through a prism a critical prism what you see is a whole rainbow of colors if you look back at american history through a critical prism of race and um ethnicity and gender and so forth, you see it was always multicultural. It's not just something that was discovered recently. And instead, it it's not just your contributions to the mainstream. It's actually the struggles of ordinary people uh, that created that history, not just the people that are acknowledged. Uh, for example, the Q Ordinance in San Francisco was, uh, the, the Chinese were, they were cutting off their queues, and they sued the, um, the um uh they sued the um uh, person who was enacting this law, and they pooled all their money together to fight it legally and The case went all the way to the Supreme Court where it was heard by justice fields was a famous um, um uh, justice and what he ruled was that uh it was illegal for this Q-ordinance to be put in effect because it was targeting a group of people in a discriminatory way. And what happened was that the 14th Amendment was made to apply not only to citizens, but to anyone residing in America. And it was brought forth by these Chinese workers who pooled their money to fight this collectively. And they're not given, you know, a part of of history they're not acknowledged but this these kinds of things are important it's people on the margins of society not those in the mainstream who have struggled for their uh human rights and for their civil rights that has made america a more democratic place for everyone and that's why i look at the margin margins the the marginalized histories knowing that latin american history knowing the chinese american history knowing the asian american history knowing italian american history that you can see how the story that we've gotten is not the right one it's not just people contributing to the the white dominant narrative it's really all people in america because of a kind of a melting pot and a place of welcoming immigrants Uh, you're tired, you're poor, you're huddled, masses yearning to be free, that America became a more free and democratic place. And it didn't happen without a lot of blood and a lot of struggle.
2: Let me uh, turn our direction a bit, although, Gary, I'm turning the direction uh, prompted by something that you said not so long ago. Uh, Revelation book of Revelation, and the tree as it appears there, we can all be Marxists if we decide to look at everything in terms of class struggle, and we can be, all of us, critical race theorists if we look at everything through the struggle uh, among the races what well, we want to be are followers of Jesus Christ. That's what we want to be, first and foremost. And we believe that Jesus Christ founded a church. And what we found is in the life of that church, nations have oftentimes tried to uh, take over the church for themselves. It's one of the oldest stories in the history of the church. Hmm. And we find that Christians have often been willing to compromise with the nations in which they found themselves. And, of course, that's part and parcel of uh, our origin in Judaism, where the Jews oftentimes tied to uh, compromise with the nations around them in in ways that went against God's law. And here in the United States, we could say that... uh, I'm being very, very, very broad brush. I can't imagine a broader brush. But here in the United States, uh, Christians have become properly bourgeois in order to conform to the ethos of a, a capitalist society. And now we have, and of course this is just manifestation 9027, now we have the idea that in China the church is just okay, so long as it's Chinified. Sinicization. And uh, here in the United States, we have pretty much the response, well, all right, whatever, just so long as we can maintain a, a, a profitable trade balance. Hmm. So we look at China in terms of economics, and China looks at the church in terms of Chinese uh, uh, state power, and uh Put it in a very, very broad term and, and to add an element of <clears throat> modest humor to it. Here on this show, we mostly believe in rum, Rome, and rebellion. <laughs> if you believe in rum, Rome, and rebellion, and I certainly do, uh, how would you assess what's going on in, in China under the direction? Uh, not of the virtue, but under the direction of the centralization of power, pure and
3: simple. Well, of course, I can't speak for, you know, what's going on in China today. When when I went back in 1995 with the Society of Christian Philosophers, I had to teach myself about Chinese history, and, and I wanted to give a piece that would, you know, speak about the gospel in China. And so I um, struggled very hard. I was in Port Jefferson. I stumbled into a bookstore, and I found a book of Christian art done by Asian artists from all over the world. And I said, okay, this is what I'm going to use. I'll use these images because they'll be, get past the translators. And, and I also wanted to address the issue of Tiananmen Square without uh, doing it directly. Um, because that would be against, you know, all of the, uh, the, uh, the delicacies of the politics. But I wanted to address that issue. So I, I looked at Paul's address to the, to the philosophers in the Areopagus and Mars Hill. And what he did was he, he, he talked about the, uh, unknown God right he 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 saw all of these you know religious relativism, all these gods I mean so here's this unknown god, and if you go back into Diogenes Laertes, it turns out this unknown god uh you know goes back even to epimenides Epimenides oftentimes logicians like to quote um um you know the book of Timothy, where is Epimenides one of the Cretans, one of their own you know lazy. And so forth, but they said all Cretans are liars, right? Well, it turns out Epimenides had talked about this unknown god, and so uh, it, what I thought was that in every culture there was a seed that God planted, uh, so for the gospel to grow. And the key for me going to China was to find what that was, and for me it was Tiananmen. It's the gate of heavenly peace. And so what I, I wanted to say in my talk was that the 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 seed that had been planted in China this this um, Tiananmen which was the gate to the the you know Forbidden City where the ancient um, emperors lived and also the square at which the pro democracy movement took place uh, could be this counterpart to the unknown god you know Tiananmen means gate of heavenly peace Tian is is heaven and um, All of these events happened here, just like in, you know, um, Jacob's ladder in the Old Testament, this this way to heaven. And I I thought, you know, I could declare what the true meaning of the gate of heavenly peace is, because Jesus is our peace. The gate to heaven is, you know, Jacob's ladder in the Old Testament. And that the true meaning of the gate of heavenly peace is given in Christ. And so um, I went there sort of naive at the time, I threw a bunch of books into my um, suitcase. We're not, we weren't supposed to bring Bibles because that was illegal. But I, I threw some John Stott uh, books in there. I, I threw The Cost of Discipleship. Um, and so when I went there, I, I, I found that some of the scholars that we were talking to were very interested in Christian philosophy. The state was interested because they thought Christianity led to the Protestantism which led to capitalism which led to uh you know a productivity and so forth um, but some of these scholars were truly interested in in um you know dietrich Bonhoeffer and so forth and mm-hmm. and so when i when I was there, I wrote my name in Chinese and put it out there and I was trying to make a statement and and one of the one of the scholars was a, a, a you know um Bonhoeffer scholar, and I said, look back in my my hotel room, I have a copy of the cost of discipleship. I brought it. You can give it to one of your students. And he, and he followed me all the way back to my hotel room and I handed to him this book with a green cover. And he, he, he began to weep because he had never held a copy of that book. And this was his the you know his passion for scholarship and because of the censorship, you know, they wouldn't let him have these books. And I think what had happened in China, there's the there's the state-sponsored church, the three-self church, three-self patriotic church, and then there's the official versions, but there's also the underground church. And so, um, you know, I, I didn't know much about it. I gave my talk and, and the students rushed up to the translator and they said, what must I do to be saved because of these pictures by Asian artists? And uh, and Enoch Juan, who was our translator, I was sharing rooms with him. And he told me that he had started the first Bible studies at Stony Brook, where my university was. And I had met him just accidentally because I switched rooms with a theologian who didn't want to share rooms with him. And I said, of course, I'll share rooms with him. And, and, and what happened was um, the underground church contacted him. He had been trying to reach them for 12 years. And we went on this, you know, from place to place. And finally we met with some people in the underground church. And and I asked, you know, I, I opened up their their hymnal, right? And one of the things is one of my daughters, after my wife lost her first child, um, I, I, there was a man named John Wimber who prayed for my daughter to be born. And when I opened that thing up, the songs they had, there was John Wimber's spirit song. And, um, so I, you know, I gave them all my equipment that I had smuggled in so I could show the slides and all this sort of thing. And I said, what can I, you know, what can I do for you? You know, and they said, um, you know, just pray for us. And I said, will you, will you pray for America? Because I feel that your faith is so much stronger. And, um, they agreed to pray, and that's when I came back to the U.S. after that. And I saw Charles Wong had gone to China, and I had my dad draw the plans, and I submitted it, and all of this stuff happened. And I kind of attribute it to the sincerity of the believers in China. Uh, Enoch went back, uh, sponsored by a church I was attending, to to train. Uh, people to learn how to do their own Bible studies because they had been just listening to Christian radio. When the missionaries got kicked out of China, that's when the indigenous form of Christianity took root in China. And he taught them how to go to the scriptures and, you know, give their own lessons, not just memorize what these radio preachers had said. And these people said, "Now we could go home for the first time," you know. And and he would tell stories. They would be locked up in a house at four in the morning, and they would pray with their arms on the wall so that when when they would fall asleep, their head would hit the wall and they would keep praying. And, uh, you know, I think we could learn a lot. Um, When you say, you know, with the Great Commission in Matthew is Pantitan ethnē is to go to all people groups it's translated nations but ethnē is the word and it means that you know people groups you need to to give the gospel in their heart language so when it takes root we learn more about the gospel because we've followed the great commission it wasn't that you know the society of christian philosophers knew what all christianity was about and just had to be transplanted into china but i thought we had so much to learn from them you know that that it's not just about acting against your conscience or guilt. There was the removal of shame, that the Chinese was an important part of losing face. It was part of knowing solidarity in sin, rather than individuals having you know just confess their faith to, uh, you know, say a sinner's prayer. But the the, the community as a whole, um, you know, suffering in sin because of of of, of what. Their forefathers had done, and learning to be healed in groups, and that's why I think the gospel begins with the tree in Genesis and ends with the tree of life in in Revelations, because it's all the people groups that need us to teach us the fullness of the gospel that Jesus came to 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 uh, to give us.
2: Thank you, Gary, for that extraordinary account. We are at the end of. Our program, and as you know, we always end with the gospel for today, which is a short gospel that's from John. Jesus said to his disciples, As the Father loves me, so I also love you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love, I have told you this so that my joy might be in you, and your joy might be complete. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Thank Thanks you. so much, Gary. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>
3: thank, you. Well, thank you, Jim. It's been great to connect with you after all these years.
2: Well, what's it been? Four or five? <laughs>
3: <laughs> My first I, article published with you.
2: I thought, I, thought, <laughs> I thought getting old would take longer. <laughs> <laughs> well,
3: well, let it take a little longer for all of us.
2: All right.
4: Godspeed. Take care. Take care, Gary. Thank you. Bye, Gary. Bye. Thank you. Higgs flight.